Okay. Um, I'm not going to ask about homework because it was really just a filler. Uh, it, it pertained. If you read it, thank you. If not, um, it's something we can pass by. So today, our lecture tonight, what I want to talk about is having faced the deficiencies of the historical critical method, um, what we talked about last week, mainly its insistence upon human authorial intent being the sole carrier of meaning, we now turn to a broad theory, uh, toward rather sketching a broad theory of apostolic interpretation. In other words, we're going to try to figure out what the apostles are up to. So it's our goal in this class to uncover the method or the principles um, that were used to undergird their use of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, some would argue, and I kind of want to get your guys' opinion on this one, some would argue that there is no inherent method. Um, the way that the apostles use the Old Testament. Instead, that the apostles play fast and loose with the scriptures. In other words, they find Jesus, or better, read him into the Old Testament, much like a magician pulling a rabbit from, from a hat, right? They're, they're reading him into the passage. Oh, look, there he is. They're discovering all these connections, but they're ultimately arbitrary. Um, have you ever thought that? Have you ever run into that um, opinion anywhere in your experience with the scriptures and commentaries and the like? Anyone? Mike, you're nodding your head? Yeah, fast and loose. I've heard that before. I was listening to a conversation and uh, someone was talking about the use of the apostles' use of the Old Testament, and that was the phrase they specifically used. They're playing fast and loose with the Old Testament. Right, yeah, it seems it's a logical conclusion sometimes when you can't make sense of it. Yeah, okay, so they're playing fast and loose with the Old Testament. That's one view. Um, and largely, if we hold to the historical critical method, what we talked about last week, that's the main view. So I read this quote last week. Last week. It's important to read it again and just kind of give you a feel of kind of the dominant view. This is Richard Hayes. He says, historical criticism of the sort commonly practiced in the academic guild for the past two centuries, characteristically judges that the New Testament's Christological readings of Israel's scriptures are simply a big mistake. They twist and misrepresent the original sense of the text. Right? So if you're reading it from the modern framework, you're likely to come to that conclusion. They're twisting, they're misrepresenting what the Old Testament Says Now, there are more conservative and more liberal takes on that same statement. The fast and loose view that I just mentioned being the more liberal view, right? Essentially, that the apostles are kind of just doing what they will with the scriptures. And a more conservative view uh, being something like that of G.K. Bill, a New Testament scholar, um, who has more of a conservative take. Now, he acknowledges that the apostles do use the Old Testament, in his words, non-contextually. So what he means by that is sometimes they pull a verse or they pull a passage from its context to make it say something else. So that's what he says, non-contextually. 
in disregard of its original historical context. Yet he says that those instances where we find the apostles doing that is rather few in number, um, and the exception proves the rule. He says mainly what the apostles do with the Old Testament is not that strange, but sometimes it is. And when we do that, when they do do that, it just shows you, hey, this is the normal way of doing things. Now, obviously, we can't side with the liberal side of things, right? We, we, we have too high a regard um, for the unity of the Old and New Testament. Um, and also, we don't want to paint the apostles as either disingenuous at worst or naive at best, right? Either they're deliberately tinkering with the scriptures, manipulating them, or, you know, that's an infantile, simple kind of uh, childish way of reading scriptures. Uh, But Bill's position, this more conservative one, it's more palatable, right? Okay, we do find that, but mostly they read the same way we do. Um, But I think it has its trouble as well. And it's that both positions, uh, the liberal and the conservative, make the same mistake. They assume that our modern approach to the scripture is the right one. And neither position under, or rather examines the presuppositions they bring to the text. So the apostles are weighed in the historical critical balance, and they're found wanting, right? But the question is, are they being judged unfairly? Should we subject the apostles to our modern reasoning? Um, and I think, I think they are being judged unfairly. So our approach is different, right? Rather than trying to take what we find in the Bible, namely the way the Old Testament uses the New Testament, and try to shoehorn it into our modern way of thinking, it would rather be better to take a step back and try to discover how the apostles themselves approach the Bible, right? So it doesn't quite make sense to us, and it seems maybe even a little suspect at, some, at times, But is there a perspective? Is there a way of looking at the scriptures where that does make sense? Right? Where what they're doing doesn't seem so strange, but actually seems like the natural and the right thing to do with the scriptures. So that's what we want to do this evening, is try to kind of, we've talked about the the difference now. And so I want to kind of, well, explain, I think, that framework that the apostles came to the scriptures with. And so that starts... Um, with the transfiguration, okay? The transfiguration. You guys know the story where Jesus and uh, Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain, and he was transfigured before them. His appearance changed. And it seems like an odd place to start, the transfiguration, but coupled with two other passages, I think you'll see that it proves to be the interpretive key to the entire scriptures. Now, It begins, uh, Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2, as follows. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. So, we're familiar with the details upon the mountain. As he was praying, Luke tells us, Jesus' appearance was transfigured before them. It's where our word, 
metamorphosis comes from, and it essentially means to change in appearance. And that's what happens. Luke tells us that Jesus' face became different, and Matthew tells us that it shone like the sun. So Jesus was transfigured before the disciples. And what happens is that Jesus' true nature, that is, his divine nature, shone through his human nature on the holy mountain. So what had been hidden and accessible only by faith is now manifested in an unmediated and direct way, right? So Jesus' divinity being formerly veiled under his flesh is now completely revealed. And here's a point that we're going to spend a little bit of time on. The revelation of Jesus' divine glory was in anticipation of his return, okay? So what the apostles saw on the mountain was was in anticipation of what all humanity will see when Jesus returns. So here what uh, the apostle Peter, looking back on his experience on the mountain of transfiguration, here's how he describes it. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What is he talking about there? Eyewitnesses. Well, he goes on later in the passage to talk specifically about the transfiguration. They saw with their own eyes the glory of Jesus Christ. So put simply, the transfiguration is a glimpse or a foretaste of when Jesus will come in glory um, to render judgment upon the nations and to usher in his kingdom. So that's what he says there. We don't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the coming and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's certainly more to say there, this anticipatory nature to the transfiguration. But for now, that's all I want us to recognize. Okay, there's this forward-looking element to what happened on the mountain. That same glory that was revealed to the apostles will be revealed to all mankind on that coming day. Okay, so any questions about this forward-looking nature of the transfiguration? Pretty straightforward, right? Okay, so let's continue. Now verse 3, Matthew chapter 17, verse 3. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So Jesus is transformed, his glory is manifested, and suddenly beside him we have Moses and Elijah. Now this is an interesting detail and one that we want to settle on, very important for our purposes. Why Moses and Elijah? And moreover, why are they talking with Jesus? Any any guesses on that? Why Moses and Elijah? Yeah. So the two witnesses. Okay. Bob? Law and the Prophets. Yes. Okay, so in the presence of two witnesses and 
the law and the prophets. And that's actually... Okay, and that's where we want to take this, right? Um, Moses quite obviously stands for the law. His name is synonymous with it. Sometimes the law is just called Moses, right? And Elijah stands for, just as Bob said, the prophets being, in the Old Testament, the greatest prophet taken as he was into heaven, right? You guys know the story in 1 Kings where Elijah is swept up in the chariots of fire and he never tasted death. Um, so, Alistair Roberts, he explains, um, he says, Between them, they are the two greatest Old Testament witnesses. Some have seen Moses as representing the law and Elijah the prophets. They stand for all the revelation that had come beforehand. And if you're attentive to it when you read the scriptures, you'll find the Old Testament summarized as just that, the law and the prophets. Sometimes the law, the prophets, and the writings, but mainly the law and the prophets. That sums up the entire Old Testament. So that much, that's uncontested, right? Virtually all commentators recognize the symbolic import that goes beyond the men themselves. They stand for the law and the prophets, and thus the entire Old Testament. So if we can kind of look at the transfiguration symbolically, um, we have the law and the prophets on this mountain of Jesus' glory, and they're speaking with Jesus, right? They're speaking of Jesus. Luke adds another detail. Luke chapter 9, this is his account, uh, verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So, in this account, Moses and Elijah are not so much depicted as talking with Jesus, so much as they are talking about Jesus. So, uh, and namely, rather, not just about Jesus, uh, but about what he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. So, we have here another wrinkle. You have the Law and the Prophets, talking with Jesus, the law and the prophets talking about Jesus. But we'll get to that little wrinkle in a moment. Then comes the climactic conclusion of the transfiguration. Verse 5 now of Matthew 17 on the screen. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Think of this cloud coming down. We should think of the Old Testament tabernacle, the uh, Shekinah glory, uh, the cloud that would lead Israel, that would come over the tent of meeting, the Holy Spirit, essentially. Um, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So in contrast to Jesus or to the voice at Jesus' baptism, the voice here is directly to the disciples, right? Um, he's speaking to the disciples. Listen to him. And that quotation or that phrase, listen to him, is very likely an allusion and in fact a quotation from Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God, this is Moses speaking, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Right? So another Moses-like figure was predicted to come in Israel's history and Moses says, you shall listen to him. So, what we have here in the transfiguration, 
God the Father identifies Jesus as this prophet, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, to whom the disciples, to whom everyone must listen, right? Listen to him, as, of course, the author of Hebrews says in the oft-quoted verse, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. So, how then, and you guys can see where I'm going with this, how then ought we to understand the presence of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration? So we have here, in addition to the anticipatory element that I was talking about a moment ago, it looks to Jesus' coming glory, the transfiguration does. We also have a backward-looking element. The transfiguration, in other words, looks back to the law and the prophets, which spoke about Christ. What they had spoken about has finally come. So put simply, the transfiguration teaches us what the Old Testament is about. It, there's Moses and Elijah. They're speaking with Jesus in his glory. They're speaking of Jesus in his glory. So Kevin Van Hooser, he explains. He says, The transfiguration has hermeneutical significance. It eventually helps the disciples and us to discern the sense of the Old Testament. It is therefore a key that unlocks the Old Testament, signified by the presence of Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets. So any questions there? Right? That, does that make sense? The two figures witnessing to Jesus. Okay. So Moses and Elijah are present at the transfiguration as figures, symbols of the Old Testament, speaking about Jesus' coming death and resurrection. Which is to say, right, here's the point, that the subject of their conversation is the key to understanding or to interpreting the Old Testament. They're talking about Jesus' coming departure, his death and resurrection on the hill outside of Jerusalem. That is what the Old Testament is about, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can summarize the two points, right? The backward-looking part of the transfiguration and the forward-looking part of it. The transfiguration is a mini-summary of the Scripture's entire narrative sweep. So it recollects the past, the law and the prophets, which point to the present, the suffering and glory of the Christ, and it foretells the future, his kingdom to come. So thus being a summary of the entire salvation history, past, present, future, it's the interpretive key, the transfiguration, to all the scriptures. There it is showing us this is what it's about. Okay. Oh yeah, there's the, whatever the visuals, whatever the visuals, uh, the visuals help me. Moses and Elijah looking to Christ, pointing to him. So any question about the transfiguration? It's fairly straightforward. Okay, can you guys see where I'm going with this? A little bit? Okay, we're going to unlock it a little bit more. Do you have something, Ty? Oh, you're kind of... Okay, well, let's see if we can um, shore, things up, shore things up a little bit here. So, 
Now, I'm not making this up because it comes from the Apostle Peter. We've already read this passage. He says, after recalling, after recalling the transfiguration and explaining its anticipatory nature, the Apostle Peter looks back on the transfiguration and clarifies its backward-looking nature. So, he says, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21, through he says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we're going to zero in on that first sentence. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now some would say that the prophetic word that the Apostle Peter here refers to is to the transfiguration itself. But that view has a problem because he says no prophetic word and then he says later no prophecy of Scripture. So Scripture here is the key determining word. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary on Second Peter says, The prophetic word almost certainly refers to the Old Testament Scriptures, not to an event in Jesus' life, nor to any other text that is now codified in the New Testament. So, what Peter is saying here in that first line of the passage on the screen, uh, verse 19 of Second Peter, what he's saying is that the transfiguration validates and confirms the Old Testament witness. He says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Or as one scholar put it, the transfiguration reveals the proper understanding of the origin and interpretation of Holy Scripture. So Jesus' transfigured form, Moses and Elijah by his side, and the divine voice is God's own interpretation of Scripture. So he looks back, he looks at that event, and he says, we have the word made more sure. In other words, we know now what the Old Testament is about. And it's about Christ, namely his suffering and glory. So put another way, the transfiguration shows us, not in words, but in deeds, what the Old Testament is about. On the mountain, Moses and Elijah speak with Jesus about what they witnessed to while on earth, his death and resurrection. So, again, I'm driving home this point. What is the Old Testament about? The answer, it is about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, uh, Alistair Roberts, he says, The law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, all witness to the glory of Christ. All of the Old Testament looks forward to, prefigures, anticipates, and foretells what Jesus would accomplish and fulfill in Jerusalem. This era of the law, era of the law and prophets was passing, but Jesus' glory endures forever. The transfiguration declares Christ to be God's very word, the one whom we must hear. So, any questions about the transfiguration? Does that strike you as true? Does it seem shaky? I want to kind of get a pulse on things and see where you're at. Anyone? Okay, so maybe we're all in agreement? Yes? Okay, all right. 
That's new. Um, about the transfiguration? Um, I'm not sure, actually. Um, I think maybe those details are just looked over um, because, you know, the lack of seeing any deeper spiritual significance kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure what they would say on it. Um, but there is a continuity, though, from uh, ancient times to now in this reading. Like most of the people I was reading, quoting from there are rather recent as it is. So, Okay, so and now I want to connect the transfiguration with another event, and that is um, what happened on the road to Emmaus. Right? You guys remember after Jesus rose from the dead, the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus didn't understand the meaning of the strange reports about hearing Jesus alive from the dead again, right? They, they couldn't understand it. They walked on the road and they were despondent, um, even saying to Jesus, who was walking with them, who they didn't recognize, we were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel. So their hopes are crushed, right? They don't understand. Um, they were uncomprehending when Jesus rebuked them in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 27. It says, And he said to them, O foolish men of slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, right? We just saw him at the transfiguration. And with all the prophets, there's Elijah. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So although the two disciples knew the facts about Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, its significance the meaning of those events eluded them. And why? What's going on there? Why did they not understand? Because, Jesus says, they didn't know the Scripture. They were slow of heart to believe. And they had to be taught the Scripture, right? It had to be open to them. So it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained the things concerning himself. So notice what we have here. We have a reciprocal relationship between Jesus' life and the Old Testament scriptures. On the one hand, Jesus cannot be understood apart from the Old Testament scriptures, right? They witness to him. They foretell what's going to happen. And on the other hand, the Old Testament cannot be understood apart from Jesus. So, Here we have Jesus alone can explain the scriptures, and in explaining them, he explains himself. You have this circular relationship. The scriptures explain Jesus. Jesus explains the scriptures. So, you know, we can give the disciples some grace. They had yet to understand the scriptures because the very key to understanding them, Jesus' death and resurrection, had not yet been given to them. Is only after the resurrection that these things begin to make sense. So, again, hear what Kevin Van Hooser says. He says, The practice of reading the Old Testament as witnessing to Christ began not because the disciples had discovered a newfangled exegetical technique, but because Jesus told them something they did not know. Namely, the scriptures were indeed about him. So what he's saying there is that what we find the apostles doing in the Old Testament 
It isn't because they found some new way of reading the Bible, right? Some cool way that they adopted from the Greeks. Instead, they were told something that they never knew. That all the scriptures are about Jesus. So the true meaning of the Old Testament, not just what, not just what happens, right? Not just kind of what morals we can derive from the text, but the true meaning of the entire Old Testament can only be understood in retrospect by looking back after the fact, by, for the disciples, this process of rereading the scriptures. So the disciples, and everyone really, they missed Christ foretold in the Old Testament because they didn't know how to look for him. They didn't know they needed to look for him. But having come, now that Christ is here, they do know. And there's more to say, but the thing that I want us to latch onto at the moment is that the history of Christ is the interpretive key that unlocks the entire Bible. The Old Testament scriptures interpret Christ, and Christ interprets the Old Testament scriptures. Does that make sense? Is that so? Let's maybe put ourselves in the apostles' shoes for a moment. Let's. I mean, the Bible, the scriptures for them were their popular culture, right? It, it, it bled into every facet of their life. They knew the law and the prophets, like we would know. I don't know a Star Wars movie or whatever, right? It's just there at hand. Now. Jesus comes, you believe him to be the Messiah, he dies, and then he's raised from the dead the third day, and he says, how'd you guys not see this coming? Aren't we reading the same scriptures? And then, we'll see a little bit later, he opens their understanding, and then they go back to the scriptures, and then they see Jesus everywhere present. You see how what's happening here is not based on some fancy new element of reading scripture, like some new technique. But it's simply, Jesus is here, the key to all the scriptures. Now it makes sense. Any comments on that? Does that make sense? Jeff? Not that they didn't mean anything, and we'll get to this, but that their true meaning, um, the deepest meaning, right, the, the one that points to Christ eluded the readers. Now, of course, there were, there were prophetic elements, right? Um, 2 Samuel 7, talking about the Christ, all the stuff about the seed of, uh, of the woman. There's a, there's, a, there's a fair deal of that going on. Um, but the point is, not just in those passages, the explicit prophecies, but in all the scripture, this was what was being spoken about. This is what was being witnessed to. Does that make sense? Bob, did you have something to add there? That's right. Yeah, John chapter 5. Yeah, so you search the scriptures thinking you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. Or, you know, um, what did he say? If you believed in Moses, you would also believe in me, for he wrote about me. Mike? Yes. And I think that's a good way to put it. So let me rephrase it. Tell me if this was right, Mike. So you said the, the, the Jews 
believed the scriptures, spoke to the Messiah, witnessed to him, but the way Jesus mentioned it was on a, a deeper level. And I think that's right. Because they, they were expecting a Messiah, but they weren't expecting a suffering Messiah who would then rise again. And so that's why they didn't understand. Why did he die? Why, why, did, why are our hopes crushed? Why can't we understand the resurrection? Um, so there was a whole another depth to it that they had totally missed that can only be seen when Jesus comes. Okay. Anybody have anything to that? Uh, Jeannie. Yes. Yes. So it's this process of rereading, of going back. The new events shed light on the old events so that the old events are reinterpreted. And we'll spend a minute talking a little bit about that, and I'll kind of try to put it in a, give it a, some framework. Um, okay. So now I want to talk about a little bit the hypothesis of Scripture. And this is a concept that comes from one of the church fathers named Irenaeus. And I think it's very helpful. Now, he makes the claim that to read the scriptures correctly, they have to be read according, um, interpreted according to their own hypothesis. Now, what he means by the term hypothesis is not exactly what we mean, what we mean today. In its classical context, hypothesis meant something like uh, the gist of a literary work or its main idea. So, for example we might argue about the meaning of a movie, and what we're arguing about is the hypothesis of the movie. So is it merely about the characters and their journey, just the events that happen, or is there some deeper unifying uh, theme that unites all the events, right? And so I say it's about this, and you say no, it's about that, and what we're arguing about is the hypothesis, right? We're trying to figure out What's the one thing at the bottom that unites it and ties all those loose threads together? So thus, what Irenaeus does is he says that the heretics, they come to their heretical interpretations of Scripture because they have not identified the correct hypothesis of Scripture, the hypothesis that integrates the entire scriptural corpus into a unity. So essentially he's saying their main idea is the wrong main idea. They're not approaching it right. So he provides a helpful illustration. It's very long and very run-on, um, but you'll get the point. He says, their manner of acting, he's speaking of the heretics, is just as if one, when a beautiful image of a king has been constructed by some skillful artists out of precious jewels, should then, be taken, should then take this likeness of the man all to pieces should rearrange the gems and so fit them together as to make them into the form of a dog or of a fox, and even that but poorly executed, and should then maintain and declare that this was the beautiful image of the king which the skillful artist constructed, pointing to the jewels which had been admirably fitted together by the first artist to form the image of the king, but have been with bad 
uh, effect transferred by the later one by the latter one to the shape of a dog and by thus exhibiting the jewel should deceive the ignorant who had no conception what the king's form was like and persuade them that the miserable likeness of the fox was in fact the beautiful image of the king so it's really wordy but Irenaeus's example demonstrates there that the role that the hypothesis serves in biblical interpretation similar maybe to a puzzle right You've got all the pieces, and it's incredibly hard to put the puzzle together without having the completed image to consult, right? And so he says the heretics, they've got the wrong image. So they take all the puzzle pieces of the scripture, and they put them together, and rather than arriving at the beautiful image of the king, they get to a fox, right? They get to something else. And so what he's saying then is that to read the scriptures rightly, You need to have the right hypothesis, the right picture that unites the scriptures and all their diversity into one unified corpus. And without that, without the image of Jesus, one is bound to misinterpretation. They're going to come to the picture of a fox, right? They're going to come to the wrong conclusion rather than the king. And so, what is the hypothesis of the scriptures? In short, it's Jesus Christ. He's the divine picture, the image to which the scriptures correspond. And he brings them unity and fits them together. I love this quote from John Webster. He says, Unity is given by the fact that these texts, in all their incontrovertible diversity of origin and composition and matter, are gathered and formed into a unity by Christ. All things cohere in him. There is again a certain obscurity to this unity, which does not reside on the surface of the text, but in the one whom the texts are servants, the eternal Son. He, not their discrete occasion, is the primary context and referent. By him they are held together. So Christ is the divine image, the hypothesis to which the scriptures correspond. And they can be read rightly, only by consulting his image, only by going to the picture of Christ. So that brings us, I missed the heading here, that brings us to the next section, it should be on your papers, Um, this idea that the Old Testament is a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. We've already talked about this a little bit. So the person of Christ is the key that unlocks the scripture And more specifically, as we've said, his death and resurrection. It forms the starting point to our approach to the scriptures. The hypothesis that enables us to read rightly. Okay? So, let me back up and just say real quick what I, uh, uh, clearly what I'm saying here. So that we're all on the same page and then I'll try to demonstrate it. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the key. If you have that, you can unlock all the scriptures. So, notice now, in John's Gospel, it's only in light of the resurrection that the Scriptures make sense. So, Jesus makes the claim in John chapter 2, an incredible claim that he will raise the temple in three days. Right? And he's speaking about the temple of his body. But no one understands him. That is, until the resurrection. John chapter 2, verse 22. So, when he had raised him from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. 
So he says, speaks this prophecy, right? He says what's going to happen. They don't, they don't understand it post-resurrection. They do. And then later on in the gospel, John records the details of the triumphal entry. Verses, chapter 12, verses 14 and 16. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, for behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, i.e. referring to his death and resurrection, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and they had done these things to him. You see what's happening with the disciples? There's this sort of re-reading of the scripture post-resurrection. So prior to the resurrection, Jesus' actions and the scriptures pertaining to them remained obscure and impenetrable. But post-resurrection, the picture gradually became more clear. The resurrection light cast upon the scriptures illuminated their darkest caverns and made them accessible in a manner that they had never been before. So, here I'll refer to a little bit of what Jeannie was explaining earlier. B.B. Warfield, he compares the Old Testament to, in his words, a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. So, think of the Old Testament as this giant chamber, all these treasures in it, but not a lot of light. Right? So, obviously, he says, in Christ, that chamber once darkened, is lit up. And the light, this fresh light cast into the room, obviously doesn't bring anything new into the room. But now, because of its light, we can just see what has been there all along. What, what we weren't able to perceive. Now, with the new light, things are clear. And that light, Warfield says, is the resurrection. So in other words, Israel had been wandering in the scriptures bumping into all these Christological patterns and foreshadows, yet they didn't know it. They weren't aware of what they were dealing with until, that is, the resurrection. The light shines, and the disciples realize that Jesus' presence had been there all along, that the Old Testament was speaking of him from the very beginning. So listen to what Hans Borsma says. He says, It's possible for us, as for the New Testament authors, to search for and find the fuller meaning, he calls it the sacramental truth of the Old Testament scriptures, because our knowledge of the risen Lord enables us to recognize how he is adumbrated in them. In faith, we know our Lord as the original archetype, and therefore we can now discern his presence in the types that foreshadow him. So in other words, the apostles are not reading Jesus into the Old Testament. Right? They're not just kind of forcing him into the picture. In fact, they're discovering him there. His suffering and his glory already foretold and anticipated. So the resurrection light casts, has been cast on the Old Testament, and its glories, once hidden, are now revealed. Jesus is the sum and content of the Old Testament. Hence, um, Maybe you've heard Augustine's formula. It's, it's rather famous. Um, the new, speaking of the New Testament, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Right? So the new is in the old. The old everything we find in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament concealed, 
And he says the old is in the new revealed. Or Origen, who said it before him, he says the brightness of the coming of Christ illumined the law of Moses with the shining splendor of truth and lifted the veil that had been placed over the letter. For everyone who believed in him, he unlocked all the good things that were enclosed in it. So, I'm going to return to a theme that we talked about at the beginning of class, and then I'll open things up for a little bit of conversation. Um, But that theme was that the apostles are, again, arbitrarily reading Jesus into the scriptures, right? Playing fast and loose. Now, given our scheme, what the scripture says about itself, that can't be true. The discovery of Jesus in the Old Testament is just that, a discovery. They're not inventing anything. They're not making anything up. But they're finding, discovering what had always been there. So it's an unveiling. Jesus' presence was always there as the true meaning of Scripture. Only now, after his death and resurrection, is it discoverable. So, again, according to the historical critical method that maintains authorial intent as the Scripture's sole meaning, um, it does appear like they're reading into the text. But equipped with this understanding, right, an apostolic understanding, that couldn't be further from the truth. Again, as we already quoted, for if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. Now, Moses might not have understood everything he wrote about Christ. It's likely he didn't. I find it really hard to think that Moses knew what he was up to. But the spirit who inspired him did. So, okay, I want to show you an example of this. We've already done it a little bit in the past class, but I want to ask you guys, how does that sit? Does that seem to make sense of a lot of the things we're talking about? Like we've, remember, let's take an extreme example like Origen. Right, where it's like, whoa, that's like strange. And maybe he's he is an extreme example. But does that at least make sense now? It's like, oh, okay, I see what they're up to. I see what the apostles are up to. Uh, yes or no, or maybe not. Yeah? Okay. All right, well then good. We can we can let me so let me show you an example. Um this is the Exodus narrative. Or not, uh, the Apostle Paul's reading, rather, of the Exodus narrative, Exodus narrative in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Okay, so that Jesus is present in the Old Testament, not merely in signs and symbols, but in actuality, is a presupposition of the apostles' interpretation. So if you go to that Exodus narrative, shortly after um, they're delivered from the Egyptians and they cross the Red Sea, they're dying of thirst. And so the people complain, Moses prays, God tells him, Go strike that rock over there with your staff, and it'll pour out water. And that's what Moses does. 
water pours out, and the Israelites have something to drink. Okay? It's a very literal rock. These are historical things that are being talked about. But notice what the Apostle Paul says. The rock was Christ. He doesn't even say the rock symbolized Christ. He says the rock was Christ. Now, we should not understand that too literally, i.e. a previous incarnation. But spiritually, as he says, Christ was spiritually present. The Israelites shared in Christ, though they didn't know it was him. Right? So they're receiving these blessings, right? They're receiving the water. And Paul's saying they're receiving in Christ, even though they didn't know it was Christ for whom they were blessed by. And I think even more startling, the apostle claims that the elements of communion, um, right, that we share in every Sunday, were also present in the manna and the, uh, the manna the Israelites ate and the water that they drank. So he says, um, the manna was the same spiritual food. The same spiritual food, right? So he's referring to the same spiritual food that the church at Corinth would have celebrated every Sunday, the Lord's Supper. The same spiritual food that you have, the body of Jesus Christ, is the same spiritual food that the Israelites had in the manna. And he says the same thing for the water, the same spiritual drink um, that they had is the one that we have. So he's showing that this continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is is quite striking. Even the elements of the Lord's Supper, our sacraments, are there in um, the Israelite story. So, So listen to someone like John Calvin, right, who, who positioned himself kind of on the other side. We kind of put him and Origen on the two sides. Listen to what he says. For what does he mean to say here but that the ancient people of God were honored with the same benefits with us and were partakers of the same sacraments, that they might not, from confiding in any particular privilege, imagine that they would be exempted from the punishment which they endured. You see the point, right? They had the same blessings that we have, the same Christ, the same uh, sacraments. So, whatever we might say about this passage, and there's a lot more to say, it sufficiently demonstrates our point. Jesus is present in the Old Testament, not merely anticipated and foretold, but he's there actually. He's embedded providentially in the text. So, so that's what John Calvin said. Now, I want to read you a quote from Martin Luther. It's a little long, but it's, it's amazing. This is in his preface to the Old Testament. So he was one of the first, well, he translated the Bible into the German language for the first time. And this was at the beginning of his Old Testament um, uh, translation. He says, There are some who have little regard for the Old Testament. They think of it as a book that was given to the Jewish people only and is now out of date, containing stories only of times past. But Christ says in John 5, Search the Scriptures, for it is they that bear witness to me. The Scriptures of the Old Testament are not to be despised, but diligently read. Therefore, dismiss your own opinions and feelings, and think of the Scriptures as the loftiest and noblest of holy things, 
as the richest minds which can never be sufficiently explored, in order that you might find that divine wisdom which God lays there before you in such simple guise as to quench all pride. Listen, this is my favorite image. Here you will find the swaddling cloths and the manger in which Christ lies. Simple and lowly are these swaddling cloths, but dear is the treasure, Christ, who lies in them. So, he compares it to the Incarnation, but of course you see Christ wrapped in the swaddling cloths. And he says, that's the Old Testament. You know, we think, ah, they're out of date, those were for Israel, that was then. You know, we, we can kind of gain some lessons. But he says, no, 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 Christ is there in all of them. So he says, diligently read them, cherish them as the, what does he say, uh, the, the loftiest, anyway, the loftiest and, ho- loftiest and most noblest of holy things. So, Christ is there, hidden, only to be discovered later in the Old Testament. Now, the extent to which that goes is astonishing. I'm going to, we're going to walk through a passage next week, but the week after that, I'm going to take you through all, not all, a, a good survey of the Old Testament so that you could see everywhere. It's astonishing Christ presented the Old Testament. And your homework this week will be kind of along those lines. Um, I'm going to give you a few layups of uh, passages to read to search for Christ. So any questions about what's being said there? We're all in agreement? Is it making sense? Is a light bulb going on or is this like, okay, I knew this? Okay, light bulb's going on. All right. It changes things, right? When you're going to go to the Old Testament and you're like, okay, I'm reading a boring story about David again. There's more... To be had. Okay, so let's take it just a step further, and I want to address a few, um, a few things I brought up at the beginning of this course. So, and, and we're going to go back to the transfiguration. It teaches us, on the one hand, what the Old Testament is about, the sufferings and glories of Jesus Christ. But now, on the other hand, it also teaches us how to read the Old Testament Christologically. So Kevin Van Hooser, someone I've been relying on to put this lecture together, he says that the paradigm for understanding what, that the transfiguration is, rather, the paradigm for understanding what spiritual interpretation is and does. Which is to say, it's a model, the transfiguration, of how to discover Jesus in the Old Testament. So maybe we can compare by, uh, we can start by comparing Jesus' glory to that of Moses' glory. You remember when Moses went on the mountain, his face was shining when he came down and the Israelites were afraid, so he put a veil to cover his face. Now, Moses' glory was external, right? It was reflected because he was in the Lord's presence. Um, It wasn't intrinsic to him, but it was extrinsic from the outside. Jesus' glory, however, it was neither reflected nor received. It shone from him, right? He radiated light rather than receiving it and reflecting it. John of Damascus, an old church father, says he is transfigured, not by receiving something he is not, but but by revealing to his disciples that which he really is. So his divinity was already present, yet it was hidden within his humanity, right? It was cloaked under his human flesh. Do you remember what uh, Origen compared the literal sense of the Scripture to and his scheme? Remember, it was 
soul, spirit, and body. He compared the body to the literal sense. And that's what we're doing. Look, again, Kevin Van Hooser. Something similar happens um, when the divine discourse shines through the human authorial voices of the Old Testament. Christ's physical body is to his transfiguration what the literal sense is to its spiritual rendering. It is not a matter of leaving the body or the verbal sense behind, but of penetrating more deeply into its intrinsic intrinsic nature. So Jesus links the literal sense of the human authors to Jesus' physical body. And likewise, he links Jesus' divine glory to the divine spiritual meaning of the scriptures. He, He puts those two together. And he says, getting from the human element to the divine element is not a matter of leaving the human element behind, right? When Christ is transfigured, he doesn't shed his body, but his glory shines through his human body. So, again, we're not leaving the human element behind, but we're penetrating more deeply into it, or rather allowing the glory to shine from beneath it. So the Christological meaning of the Old Testament is not above or disconnected from what the human authors intended, but it shines through their words, right? It it comes through them. So here's why this is important, even if maybe you don't, quite get what I'm saying there. I'm, I'm not sure I said it very well, but it's crucially important because it connects a passage's literal sense to its spiritual sense. Okay, they're connected rather than severing them. In other words, the type of spiritual reading that we want to do is spiritual reading that's under the control of the literal sense. So just as the divine glory shown through Jesus' human body So we want the spiritual meaning of the scriptures to shine through their literal meaning. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. So if we were to sever them, they would be uncontrolled, right? It would be spiritual reading that we could do whatever we wanted with it, but we're connecting them. So I want to now get to that example. Um, And I want a a 5th century bishop, Caesarius, um, I want to give him as an example of someone who does a spiritual reading that's not connected to the literal sense. So he has a sermon on David and Goliath. And he says that David is sent to his brothers, or the passage says that David is sent to his brothers with an ephah ephah of roasted grain. So Caesarius marks that because an ephah is a quantity of three measures, it points to the mystery of the Trinity. Right? So you see how based on the literal sense, it's kind of hard to get there. He just takes the number three and goes Trinity, right? Um, And then he does the same also with the cheese that David has. He's got ten cuts of cheese. I think it's interesting that it records those details. I mean, why would it say that? Why do we need to know there were ten cuts of cheese? There might be something to that. But anyway, Caesarius says it's the Decalogue of the Old Testament. It's the Ten Commandments. And he says, together... What the cheese and the grain reveal is that Christ was, come, was to come with the Decalogue of the Law and the mystery of the Trinity to free the human race from the power of the devil. And on and on he goes, right? Drawing all these spiritual meanings from the passage there. Now, Caesarius's reading is unconvincing because 
it seems like there's a really strong element of arbitrariness there. Like, okay, anytime we find three, we go to the Trinity. Anytime we go to ten, we go to the Decalogue. It seems a little suspect. Now, apart from those number connections, and again, I'm not one to shrink from biblical numerology. I think there's absolutely something to it. Um, There are the ten words of the Decalogue. When God creates, he speaks ten times. I mean, ten is not an insignificant number. However, there's nothing to recommend or to hint at in the passage that sort of reading, right, and the legitimacy of it. Um, And of course, it was this kind of reading, um, this kind of spiritual reading, which came to dominate, if you guys can remember a few classes back, that late medieval era, um, when it was just a lot of kind of arbitrariness. It was just a lot of weirdness. And so the reformers protested against it. And so here, Brad East, I think he gets at the kind of reading that I want to argue for. He says, in both colloquial and technical usage, allegory often means a word's self-annihilating reference. It signifies that which it is not, and in conducting the reader to the unnamed but nevertheless symbolized reality, it is itself no longer needed. It has no significance for in and for itself. The ladder is kicked away once it is climbed. That again is not how any part of scripture should be read. So what he describes there is an allegorical or spiritual reading that's divorced from the literal sense. Again, it's something similar to what Caesarius was up to. The, the passage's literal meaning, it, it doesn't have any it doesn't have, or rather, the passage's literal sense doesn't have any meaning. Right? It's like, okay, we just need those details to get us to the spiritual meaning, and once we get to the spiritual meaning, we can just throw away the literal part of it. We don't need that anymore because all it's meant to do is symbolize something else. And so what he's saying is that this manner of spiritual interpretation annihilates and erases a passage's literal meaning. And it, and it does, right? It's the kind of allegory that, again, doesn't pay sufficient attention to the literal meaning. So it's sidestepped. And what happens is then all control of that spiritual meaning is lost. What we want to do, taking our cues from the transfiguration, is find the right balance. The literal and the spiritual senses are not in opposition to one another, but they're in conjunction. Um, Henry de Lubach, in his big book, Medieval Exegesis, and he's largely responsible for bringing what the apostles were doing into the modern era, He says, there is no disassociation of the two senses. The spirit does not exist without the letter, nor is the letter devoid of the spirit. Each of the two senses is in the other, like the will within the will. Each needs the other. The spiritual sense is also necessary for the completion of the literal sense, which the latter is indispensable for for founding it. And that's how we want to move forward. The spiritual sense is the completion of the literal sense, right? It's not disconnected from it. It's not somewhere else. It's not higher or whatever. It's the completion of it. And the literal sense is the foundation for the spiritual sense. And so what God has joined together, those two things, let no man separate. We want to keep those with one another. So before I get to the conclusion, um, 
which is basically just a, a wrap up of some stuff we've already covered. I want to, if there are, open it up for uh, some discussion there. Uh, I guess I asked, how does it does it resolve things for you? Do you find yourself maybe moved more now toward the spiritual side of things? Is it demystified a little bit? Time. Yes. There's nothing spiritual about the cheese or anything going on there, but there's something spiritual happening with that rock. Rocks don't magically appear in water. You can kind of, re- you don't have to reach too far into it to see the spiritual meaning behind it. Like Jesus is the rock that gives life to water. So the, uh, the supernatural element kind of gives you a little bit of, a little bit of room to yeah. pursue that. Okay, yeah, I can see that. What about that makes sense, right? So that kind of opens the door a little bit. Okay, well, what about a passage where there isn't that? So let me take uh, a a non-supernatural occurrence. Okay, so we're going to do David and Goliath next week. Can David and Goliath be read that way? Because there's not necessarily anything supernatural going on there, um, at least in the explicit sense. Okay. 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 So, well, I like what you're saying. There's some hints. There's some hints, however one finds them, that kind of opens the door for it. Okay. Okay, that's good. Uh, Dad, what did you have? Uh-huh. If you take if Chuck Mister is the one that pointed this out, if you take the genealogy from Adam to Noah and write what the root word means on each side of them, it says man appointed mortal sorrow and let the blood shall come down to you and the dead shall bring everlasting rest. If that's in there, if God tells you how the Israel camp is supposed to camp, exactly how they're supposed to camp, and you fly over and it looks like a cross. It opened up. Yes. Yeah. It's similar to what uh, Laurel had said in the past, right? It's like as long as the spiritual meaning doesn't arrive anywhere weird, 
it, it's not uh, it's not entirely or not. Let's not say weird. Let's just say uh, contrary to clear teaching. Then 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 you know we shouldn't necessarily discourage it. My only thought with that is just that the ten cheeses. And maybe there, maybe there's a better way to get to the conclusion that Caesarius makes, but to me that one feels it does feel arbitrary. Um, I know ten has a specific meaning, and certainly three does as well. But is it right to always resort to that? Um, so, so yeah. But at the same time, I mean, he's not saying anything wrong. I mean, that's that's true, and. I don't think he's building his whole interpretation off of it. That's kind of just a passing comment, and I'm kind of picking on him a little bit. But anybody else? Okay, what are your thoughts? Does it, does it, I want to know from someone maybe coming in a little bit more skeptical. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, does that, or does it, uh, I don't know. How, how do those synthesize? Or not. That's all right. Um, Okay, well, let me wrap it up, guys. It's just, I just, and really all I was going to point you guys to was this passage. It's Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So notice what he added there, uh, a third dimension, law, prophets, Psalms. Psalms is going to be our last class. We're going to talk about that. But a little bit like my dad was just mentioning, wanted to kind of do that exercise to put yourselves in the apostles' shoes. You're so familiar with the scriptures, Adam and Eve, Noah and the Ark, the Exodus, David, Ezekiel, all of it, and then Christ comes. And those very same scriptures are transfigured before them. And now this hidden glory of Jesus is revealed. So, a passage like the Exodus narrative suddenly becomes all about Jesus, right? And anyway, what I want you guys to do this week for your homework, um, I I meant to send the email out at 9, I actually sent it out at 4.30, so you should have it. Um, I'm giving you two passages. Uh, The first is Exodus 12. Um, I think it's like verses 1 through 11. You'll find it there in uh, the homework. Go ahead and read that passage, and what I want you to do is read it Christologically, okay? Do your best to take that. First, read it maybe on the literal level, right? Okay, what is it saying literally? And then try to say, as it pertains to Christ, spiritually, what does this mean? Do that for number or Exodus 12, and then I also give you another passage, Numbers 21. Now, these are a bit of, of a layup, right? If you kind of just poke around, it's, it's not too hard. But I want you to see how it's a very intuitive move. And then what I'm going to do next week is I'm going to take the story of David and Goliath and we're going to interpret it according to the medieval quadriga, the four senses of Scripture, the literal, the Christological, the moral, and the eschatological sense. And I want you to, I'm going to walk you guys through that. We're going to go through the, uh, the story and then I'm going to give you guys two more passages and I'm going to ask you to do the same thing, medieval quadriga, put it to use. Then we'll do an Old Testament survey, and then we'll come to the Psalms, and we'll wrap up. And by that point, 
we should be able to get a handle on it. So a lot of the teaching part, like this kind of thing, is done. Now we're just going to more walk through the scriptures together um, for the next three or so classes. So before we wrap up, I want to ask any questions. If not, I'll say a quick prayer and we'll close. Let's do that.